0: People love novelty. Anything that's new sells. In fact, if you want to sell something, just call it new. Because people like in our society to have the latest thing, to have the newest thing, to have something that is up to date. We're constantly uh, persuaded to update, to to get with it, to catch up. It's like my milkman, of whom I've mentioned earlier, who always asks me, what's new in the church? If it's something that's new in the church, it'll be good. If it's something that's old, well, who wants that? It is that which is new. Last week we saw that Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 through to chapter 4 verse 6, or I suggested to you that it was all one section. Chapter 2 verse 17 asks the question, where is the God of justice? How is it that the evil can prosper? where is God's justice at the moment when the evil prosper the righteous suffer how can it be it's a very real question a question asked by people throughout centuries how can the world be in the mess that it's in and the God of justice be the God who rules over it all where is God's justice now and i suggested to you last week that chapter three gives the first part of the answer in terms of the coming judgment the Lord whom the people desire the Lord whom the people seek will come with justice He will send his messenger to prepare his way. Then he will come in judgment, firstly to the house of Israel, to the temple. There he will bring his justice. You want God to set the world right? He will set it right, starting with you. But in chapter 3 verse 7 we see that justice is not the only thing God comes with because he calls upon the people to repent and he gives them a magnificent promise. I read ever since the time of your forefathers you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you says the Lord Almighty. He calls the people to turn back and he will return to them. And Malachi unlike the other prophets had the great privilege of seeing people in positive response to the message seeing people actually turning back to God. In chapter 3 verse 16 we see that those who feared the Lord discussed the matter seriously. They returned to the Lord and they received that which the Lord promised. He returned to them and beautiful things are said of them in verse 16. A scroll of remembrance was written in the presence, in God's presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, saith the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. They are going to be God's special treasure his special possession they are his people the people within the people of Israel the real people of Israel those who fear the Lord those who turn back and because they turned back because they drew drew, drew near to God so God drew near to them he returned to them he took them to be his possession but that's not the end that had been the end of where we reached last week but it's not the end because in chapter 4 we see that the day is coming the day of judgment the day when God arrives with justice the day when he will judge the world And when it comes, it will be like a furnace. The destructive power of fire is such that there can be nothing left after it. There won't be a branch or a root from which a new stem might come. A couple of years ago I chopped down a a mandarin tree. It was in the way of a barbecue I was building. The barbecue is overgrown and is of no use whatsoever, but the mandarin tree has sprouted again very inconveniently as I chopped it off neatly so as to give a little seat for someone to sit by so that they could uh, sit there and, and barbecue their food. In a very spiky seat now and no barbecue in front of you. Chopping down a tree is not sufficient. Things can grow again. But rarely have I, never indeed, have I ever seen a branch come back out of a barbecue once the fire has been lit and the thing's been reduced to ashes. The destruction is total and that is the picture we're supposed to get here. There will be not a root or a branch will be left of them. Nothing. The furnace will do its job completely and notice that it is every evildoer who will undergo this treatment. Everyone who turns away from God. There is no escape. If a man is an evildoer then his end is the fire like the stubble now, it's from this picture that you uh, hear of people speaking of hellfire, and you may think that that is what I'm speaking of now, and you'd be right. That's what it's about. Now, do I think, therefore, that in hell there will be a furnace with a man or an animal of some type with tail and pitchfork thrusting people in like in a stubble? No, I don't think like that normally. You do if you look at uh, some forms of medieval art and I'm sure there'd be an interesting history of how we got our devil with a a tail and the horns and the rest. The Bible's got nothing about that in particular and uh, even the furnace itself may be nothing more than a picture of what is being said. But it is a judgment that is total, that a destruction that will reach everybody who is an evildoer and they will be destroyed so that there will be no recovery for them. And remember the distinction that has come out in this this prophecy. The distinction of who is the evildoer? Who is the wicked? Who is the arrogant? They're described and defined for us in this this, uh, prophecy. In chapter 3 verse 5 they're described by what they do. They are people who are adulterers, perjurers, sorcerers, who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. They are the kinds of things that the evil do. They are the kinds of things that the people God is going to judge will be involved in. But that doesn't really define them as chapter 318 defines them. You'll be able to see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked in that last time between those who serve God and those who do not. That is the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Those who serve God are the righteous and those who do not serve God are the wicked. If you serve God then of course you will seek to live a lifestyle different from chapter 3 verse 5. You will not be seeking to oppress the widows and the fatherless because the God whom you serve is the father of the fatherless and the defender of the widows. You will not be a perjurer because the God you are serving is a God of truth. And how can you be serving him in truth while telling lies? You see the character of your life will be affected by the fact that you are serving God. But if you do not serve God then you may well be involved in those things. But the fundamental difference between the two is their relationship with God. Be it a servant of God or an ignorer of God, a disrespecter of God. And those who are arrogant, those who are the evildoers, those who are the wicked, those who do not serve God, face certain, total destruction. But that is not all that the day holds. It's not only characterized by fire but also by sun. You may think the two will be the same but they're quite different here. Verse 2 of chapter 4 the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings or in its wings. That the sun shall come on that time, the sun that brings its warmth and rays and produces the spring with its new growth, with new life, with the new calves bounding out of the pens into the paddocks for the first time. The sun that brings life to the world, brings health, brings freedom. That also will come that the day when it comes will bring judgment and rescue and life and salvation. It will bring destruction and it will bring new creation. That one day will come in almost two absolute opposing ideas, the total ripping down of everything and the creation of the new thing that will come on that day, the fire, and the son, and the distinction the distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous will be abundantly clear for in that day the righteous will share in the judgment of the world for the righteous will be will be involved in the crushing underfoot of the ungodly and we will no longer be, problem, be troubled by the problem of chapter 2 verse 17 we'll no longer be wondering where is the God of justice and how can the ungodly prosper and how can the godly people be put down because the ungodly will be putting, being put down and the godly will prosper on that day and every eye will see that it's right, the judgment of God and the justice of God. The justice and the judgment will be right and true, it will be with integrity and it will affect every person's righteousness, will be that which counts when the Son of Righteousness arises with healing in its wings and when the arrogant, the evildoer will be thrown as into a furnace. If that is the picture of the end that Malachi gives us in the opening three verses of this chapter what is his message for people? You see it in verse 4. Malachi's message is repentance. Now is the time for repentance. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. Repentance is not feeling sorry. I know I've gone over this point on many many occasions and I will need to go over it again and again because it is so common in our society to think that repentance means being sorry and it's feeling sorry and it doesn't. You may feel sorry for things that uh, have, got, have got nothing to do that are wrong. I feel sorry for overeating this day at lunchtime. It wasn't that I was actually gluttonous. I did it for good and right reasons but my stomach makes me feel sorry. I can feel sorry for being out in the sun too long. I get a bit burnt. I took the family out on the last Sunday of our holidays and it was a very, very hot day and the weather forecast, which promised us a cool change at 11 o'clock in the morning, didn't come till 10 o'clock at night and I did the right thing for my family and by my family and I protected them for the rest of the day and by 7 o'clock at night I felt very, very sorry for myself. But I didn't repent. I just lay in a cold bath and fell asleep for an hour or so, but I I hadn't repented of anything. I just felt sorry. You can feel sorry for all kinds of things and not be involved in repenting. And you can repent of something and not feel very sorry about it. That's very easy to do, really. I'm heading out of my house tonight and I suddenly realised I didn't have any money on me. And so I turned around and went back into the bedroom and got my wallet and got my the silver and uh, put them in my pocket and then I came. Now that was a repentance. I didn't feel sorry. Grief didn't overcome me. I wasn't overwhelmed with a feeling of horror that I was racing out without my money. I mean, it doesn't cost you anything in this church, does it? I could have made it through without a penny on me. There was no feeling of grief. But there was a real, truthful repentance because I was heading out and I turned around and went back. That is what repentance is about. It is a change in mind which involves a change of life. It may involve feeling sorry. It may not. But feeling sorry has got nothing to do with it necessarily. Labours a point doesn't he sometimes? Well what are the points called upon here you see? The people are called upon to remember. That is repentance how come well Israel's faith like Christianity is a historical faith it's not just your mystical experience now that really counted either for the Israel for the for the Jew or for the Christian it's not that one day I locked myself up in a building and I was overwhelmed with a feeling of God you may have praise God if you have praise God if you haven't It's got nothing necessarily to do with being Christian or being Jewish either for that matter. Israel's faith and and Christian faith has to do with history. Certain things happened at a certain period in history. There are many things that happened that were important to Israel but the most important really was their rescue from Egypt. The time when they were in slavery in Egypt. And God sent his messenger Moses and rescued the people out. The series of the ten plagues, if you remember, the Passover being the last of the plagues, took them out into the wilderness for 40 years, cared for them as they meandered over the wilderness and then under the uh, the leadership of Joshua led them into the promised land. That whole event, which we call the Exodus, was the foundation of Israel. That is when the nation became a nation. And that is when God gave them their constitution. He made a contract with them. I am your God, you will be my people and here is the constitution by which you are going to live. And he did that on Mount Sinai which is sometimes called Mount Horeb which is what you have here in verse 5, verse 4 rather on Horeb. It was at that point that the constitution of Israel was delivered into the the hands of the people of Israel by the servant Moses. And what God says to the people, I'm going to come now and judge. I'm going to come now and heal. Those two things are about to happen. The end is coming now when the division between the righteous and the unrighteous will be abundantly clear, when the righteous will share in trampling the unrighteous underfoot. The end is coming when the evildoers will be thrown into the furnace to be destroyed totally and irrevocably. And where the where the Son of Righteousness will rise, and the people of God will be able to rejoice and be glad and bounce around like young spring lambs and like young calves let out of the out of the pen for the first time. The great time is coming. What should you do now? Remember the the contract, the constitution that was made back with Moses. Go back to the beginning. Because it is when you go back from where, from whence you have come, when you start to think how have we got to where we are, why have we come to the place we're at, that the whole direction and purpose of your life and your existence becomes clear. But it's more than that. In that great rescue, I told you what you are to do and how you are to live. I laid it out for you. The classic statement of course lies in the Ten Commandments, but that's only one small part of it of the law given by God to Moses and the people of Israel. And now you must go back to those, back to the beginning. That is the character, back to Moses and Horeb and the law. Judah is now about to meet with God. This was the ideal time to remember the time they met with God in the beginning in the wilderness and to live the way he told them to live then. But in verses 5 and 6 when we see this visit of God we find the visit is going to be more complicated than we expected because it's a double visit. Firstly God is going to send his messenger. The messenger Elijah comes. Now there's much speculation as to why it is to be Elijah or and not Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or any of the other prophets but as you're not told there I will spare you of the speculation you are told there why he will come verse 6 makes it clear he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children the hearts of the the children to their fathers or I will come and strike the land with a curse he comes to prepare the land to prepare the people so that when God comes it will not be with a curse but with healing. They are facing the possibility of curse or help, The ministry of Elijah is to prepare the people so that it be not the curse. And how is he prepared prepare the people? By preaching for repentance. By teaching repentance. By involving them in repentance. They are to turn their hearts, The children to the fathers, the fathers to the children. It may be that they're supposed to be improving family life but it seems to me that that is a great unlikelihood. Certainly it is part of God's character that people live in happy family lives and certainly at the end of chapter 2 we find out that there is unhappiness in the family life and that godly offspring are not being produced because people are practicing a uh, divorce and adultery so freely. But that does not seem to me to be the ministry of Elijah. Rather I take it that he is to be turning the hearts of the children back to their forefathers Abraham, Jacob and Isaac, back to Moses, back to the very constitution of Israel itself. You say the verse says something different to that. It also says you're to turn the fathers to the children. How can you turn Abraham back? How can you turn Jacob back? That's not so hard either. For the prophets such as Isaiah, and I'll give you a reference that you may like to check me out later on the matter, um... Sorry, I've going to find it by Nancy, which is a bit tricky. Why do I write so small? Isaiah 29, 22, and 23. Isaiah 29, 22, 23. You'll see that, that Jacob actually bewails his children. Jacob has been dead many centuries. But the people are living in such a fashion, contrary to the word of God, that he is disappointed in them. Or you find in John chapter 8, verse 56 that Abraham rejoices to see the day of Jesus. That the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel, are not beyond consciousness of what is taking place in the here and now. And they rejoice when they see the ways of God being performed in the people of God. And they are sorrowed when they see the ways of God being rejected by the people of God. And so the ministry of Elijah is to bring the people back to the fathers and thus bring the fathers back to the people. It is the idea of restoration in the land. And then when the people are prepared the Lord will come bringing judgment and health. Well how and where do we see such things fulfilled? Still the world awaits for judgment still the world awaits for God, still the unrighteous prosper, and still the, the godly seem to suffer. Where do we see it? The claim of the New Testament is that John the Baptist was the promised Elijah. That is the claim of the New Testament. He wasn't Elijah in person, reincarnated somehow, brought back from the dead. You know that by several ways. For example in John chapter 1 when he is asked are you the Elijah John the Baptist says no. That's a surprise because everywhere else you're told he is the Elijah but when John is confronted himself with it he says no I'm not. You also know it from the the Mount of Transfiguration which is in uh, Matthew 16 and Mark 9 and somewhere in Luke's Gospel I'm sorry I've forgotten where where Jesus is transfigured and Moses and Elijah are there beside him. John is not Elijah, physically, the same person Elijah, but he comes in the spirit of Elijah. That is what he's told to his father Zechariah in our second lesson this evening, in Luke chapter 1 verse 17. This babe who comes will come in the spirit of Elijah. And later in the same chapter, chapter 1 of Luke verses 76 and 78, we see this prophecy of Malachi taken up. How about we turn that up? Luke 1... A rustle of papers. Always encourages a preacher to know that you're still awake. may actually be a way of fanning yourself on a hot evening but he will interpret it as that you're awake. Luke 1,
1: 76-78 Remember
0: the words of Malachi 4 and well, if you're going to rustle them I'll wait for them. It's alright. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the most high. This is sorry, this is Zechariah speaking to his baby who's just been born, John the Baptist. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the most high, for you will go go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. See the picture of the rising sun bringing health to the nations and that will come with God but before God comes Elijah whom is John the Baptist. And so repeatedly Jesus identifies John as the Elijah. Matthew 11, 14, Mark 9, 13 are examples of it. And what is John the Baptist's message? Very simple, it's summed up in one sentence, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message. He was calling the nation to repent. And if you look at Matthew you'll find that it's all about who is the true son of Abraham? Who has Abraham as his father? It's not the Jew, it's not the Israelite. No, he doesn't have Abraham as his father. God could raise up from the stones of the desert children to Abraham. It's the ones who repent, who turn back. They are the ones who fear the Lord, who are the children of Abraham. And so John does this ministry of restoring the hearts of the children to the fathers and makes Abraham glad that such a thing should happen. John prepares the land. But once you identify John as Elijah, what comes next? What you're expecting from Malachi 4 is the judgment of the world. And that is clearly what John the Baptist expected. For he preached that there was one coming after me of whom I'm not worthy even to bend down and undo the, thong on his, uh, the latches on his sandal. There's one who's coming after me who is much greater than me. His winnowing fork is in his hand. What do you do with a winnowing fork but to separate out the wheat from the chaff? And what do you do with the chaff but throw it into the furnace that it may be burnt? The, the judgment was exactly what was expected. The Son of Righteousness rising with healing in His wings. You've heard that phrase, haven't you? Where have you heard that phrase? I know it's in the Bible. Where have you heard it? Because apart from Malachi, 4, it doesn't happen anywhere else. Where have you heard the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings? Thank you very much. Hark, the Herald Angel Singing. That's where you get it from. That Wesley knew how to write him. Of course, when you check him out, almost every phrase comes out of the uh, out of the New Test out of the Bible somewhere. Hark, the Herald is about the best carol we've got, which is not much because most of them are crummy theologically, but that one's a ripper actually because it actually says all the right things. Most of them are just sentimental tunes that we love because it's all snowing outside or something like that. Good King Wenceslaslash. That really killed me, that one. You don't even know when the Feast of Stephen was, do you? Who knows when the Feast of Stephen is? 26th of December. She comes from the Northern Hemisphere, you see. That's the only time the snow lay all about deep and even. What's that got to do with Christmas, I ask you? Yeah, well, never mind. Now, how think the herald angel's got it right? He said, because John is expecting the son of righteousness to arise with healing in his wings and for him to come with his winnowing fork in his hand. Here is the godly man in prison. There is the only godly man, Herod, out there, the king of the land. It's just like it's always been. And so he sends a message off to Jesus and said, are you the one or do we look for another? Have I made a mistake? I picked the wrong baby. Could it possibly be that, you know, it was wrong? That was a dove that actually descended on you at the time. Just coincidental. Should I look for another? Because where is the judgment? Where is the salvation? And Jesus replied and said, look at the salvation. The dumb speak, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the blind see, the poor have the gospel preached to them. You say, where is the judgment in it? Well, flip over again, shall we? John chapter 12 is a good passage because you pick up both ideas in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. The Greeks come to Philip and say, we want to see the the, 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 uh, master and Philip goes to Jesus Jesus says, now, now is my hour come in verse 23 of John 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He says of himself. And I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies and so for shoes Verse 29, the crowd does not hear the voice that comes from heaven. They just heard a noise. Some think it was an angel, some thought it was thunder. Verse 30, Jesus said, this voice was was for your benefit, not for mine. Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. First point, that in the death of Jesus is the judgment of the world. How is that? because when Jesus dies and rises again he conquers the power of evil. He conquers the very personification of evil in the devil. He conquers the victory of the evil one in his death. He conquers sin itself. The whole principle upon which this world has been run for centuries, that of the devil, that of sin, that of death, has been overcome by the sacrificial lamb who paid the penalty for sin by the risen Lord who overcame death, by the one who has destroyed the prince of death, namely Satan. The judgment has taken place. New South Wales is uh, declared at six for 560. 540? What's the difference amongst friends? Tasmania, you knew it had to be Tasmania for who else could we do that well against? Tasmania is five for 100. Those of you who don't know cricket, let me tell you something. We stand a very good chance of winning this one at least. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be a Tasmanian and go to the North Tasmania Cricket uh, Club uh, ground uh, in the coming days for anything. It is a slaughter of the, of the first order. So actually, we are decimating them almost as well as the West Indians are decimating Australia. Almost. The battle is actually all over. It's an embarrassment. Oh, a few things could go wrong because in this world we're not God. I mean, it could rain. That would let the Tasmanians off the hook. Or possibly the whole New South Wales team could come down with a flu. That's a possibility. But the game is over. The victory has really been nailed down already. There's no two ways about it. I mean, when you get 500 odd runs and you've still got two days to spare, and you've got them half out for less than a hundred in, in the, before the end of the second day. I mean, there is no way that Tasmania can win now. The battle's over. The judgment has already been declared. Those you can't follow that, it's like playing a game of soccer. There might be some people who are sufficiently uh, philistine not to follow cricket, yet still follow soccer. It's like playing soccer and it's ten minutes from the end and the score is 200 to nil. I mean, there is Buckley's that anything can happen now to save you. The victory is over. The battle's been won. Jesus has conquered Satan. He has overcome death. He has paid for all the sins of all the world for all time. The battle is over. Well, there's a bit of mopping up yet to go on, but the judgment has already taken place. But more than that in this chapter, the crowds say, we have heard from the law that Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said, you are are going to have the light just a little longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. What's this life business? What's this darkness? Run your eyes down to the end of the chapter, say verse 42. Yet at the same time many even among the leaders believed in him but because of the Pharisees they would not confess their faith for fear that that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God and then Jesus cried out When a man believes in me he does not believe in me only but in the one who sent me and when he looks at me he sees the one who sent me I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness Who is the light of the world? Who is the sun that shines upon this earth? But Jesus, he comes to bring life to the world for that is what the light does in John chapter 1 verse 4. The light brings life to man. Jesus comes both as the judgment and as the life. But there's another question I've got on the bottom of the sheet there. If John is Elijah, and following upon him comes the judgement of the world and the salvation of the world, who is it that brings that judgement? Who is it that brings that salvation? Malachi chapter 4. Who is it that follows Elijah up? Who is it that comes to the earth with both the possibility of curse and the possibility of salvation? is the Lord, that is the one he is the follower of Elijah for Elijah goes before the Lord to prepare the way of the Lord and to whom do we profess and confess Jesus to be but the Lord indeed in the end we are told that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is God who came in the person of Jesus. Well, where does it leave us now, sitting here a few centuries later? We're fundamentally different from Malachi and his generation. Because now, at this time, we can share in that to which he looked forward. Now, we can either be saved or lost. Right now, as we are at this moment, we are all and each and every one of us in a position of being saved or lost. The mopping up may not have taken place. Christmas Road, told that takes its effect on some mopping up and uh, in the end God will return in the person of Jesus and uh, mop it up finally and utterly. The mopping up may not have taken place but the judgment has already been declared. The salvation has already come and we either sit under the, under the healing warmth and light of the Sun of Righteousness or we sit in condemnation facing the furnaces that will make Belton look like a Sunday school picnic. We're in a different situation to the Malachi people but yet the message is the same. Repent. Turn back. Oh, there's no new novelty in Christianity. When you find Christian preachers who preach new things, new fangled ways of putting in new ideas, you can rest assured they haven't got the message of the Bible. The Bible's never about novelty. It's never about going on with new, new new this, new that. That's not what it's about. It's go back. Go back to the beginning. To the victory that has been won by Jesus. Go back to God from whom we have left. Go back to serve him who is our maker and our creator. Go back to the cross of Jesus and be forgiven. Go back. That is the message of Christianity. Go back before it is too late. So the message of Malachi is the message of Jesus. The message of John, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But the fundamental difference is but it's not just about to happen. It has already happened. If you've only got eyes to see it.